0: From Booksmart Studios, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. And, you know, not long ago, my sweetie and I saw the Broadway musical Jagged Little Pill. And as many of you might know, that is a jukebox musical based on the songs of Alanis Morissette. One of the songs that, of course, they include, because how could they not, is the Ironic song. Remember that one from the 90s? Of course, of course you do. It's about these things that are supposedly ironic. And so what What was it like? Somebody is very, very old, and they win the lottery, and they die, and isn't that ironic? And then there's something about, well, there's a fly in your wine, and isn't that ironic? And of course, no, it isn't. That's not what ironic is. And remember all those conversations among young people back in the 90s where people would talk about the song and analyze why the things in the lyric are not ironic? Well, it's cute that in the show, when they do this song, they actually salute those late 90s conversations that people would have. This is the ironic number as it's done in Jagged Little Pill with a little bit of that, that commentary. An old man turned 98, he won the lottery and died the next day. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon Two minutes too late And isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Hold up! Wait a second! That's actually not ironic! Right? If we're using irony as defined in Greek tragedy, I don't see how, like, a fly in your beverage applies. That's not irony. That's just, like, shitty. Remember that? The things that are in that lyric are essentially, you know, they're coincidences or they're just shit. Basically, they're not specifically irony. And in terms of, for example, language, you could say that the heart of irony is that the content, the substance of the words or the sentences that you use don't correspond to what they actually mean. And so you have to figure out what they actually mean, given the nature of the situation. It's that lack of fit between content and meaning. So there's kind of an added layer. There's a great paper about this, which unlike most academic papers is readable, And it's by Rachel Giora and Ofer Fine. They are are in Israel, and so the paper is about something that was done in Hebrew. But don't worry, it's in English, and it's worth a look. And they make the interesting point that with irony, there's a second layer that you have to interpret. And that means that irony takes more cognitive processing. In a way, you could say that irony is smarter. And So, for example, let's take real funny, which is the sentence that they use, real funny. For example, Curb Your Enthusiasm is back. That show's been running since like 1932 at this point. And so suppose you ask somebody, well, is Curb Your Enthusiasm still funny? Did you see the latest episode? And the person says, oh, real funny. And that would be sincere, especially since that show is very funny. See, that's the beginning of the theme song or that musical cue. See how I can imitate a tuba. Anyway, so Curb Your enthusiasm is funny, but then imagine if you know somebody is walking down the street and it's around twilight, and you run up behind them and grab their shoulders and go blah, 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 or something like that. Well, that could actually unnerve a person. They might turn around and say with you know a slightly slit jawed expression, real funny. Now they don't mean that it was amusing. What they mean is that it wasn't funny, and you were to consider that it wasn't funny, but the way you put it is to say real funny using the same words that you would use to describe curb your enthusiasm. So there's a second layer. You think, first of all, the person said real funny, and real funny means what real funny means, but then in this situation, well, it wasn't funny, and so what the person is actually saying is that it wasn't funny at all, they're complaining. That takes a little bit of Work And as you see, that happens even in a mundane little situation like that where everything is going by in microseconds. This is the nature of language. And by the way, notice that I'm trying to pass it off as if... My being a linguist means that I know about Old English and about Creoles and the stuff I tend to talk most about on this show. And then also, I know all about the study of irony. Frankly, I really do not. And thank you, sweetie, for making it look like I do. In any case, I do recommend the paper by Rachel Giora and O'Fair Fine. But all of this ushers us into a basic aspect of language that's so easy to miss, but creates so much confusion out in the real world, which is that lack of fit between what the words mean and what you actually mean. That is one of the hearts of language. We think it's about the dog is red. But no, it's not just making boring observations like that because we're human beings and there are layers in this life and so there are layers in this language. So much of it is about that. So for example, you say to somebody, a stranger, I'm out of gas. Now, technically, the answer could be you sure are. Or maybe that's a shame, as if you're just imparting to the person that you have run out of gas and they're going to have some response. But no, if you say to somebody, I'm out of gas, what you mean it is, is as a request for information as to where you can get some gas you could say could you tell me please where a gas station is but notice you don't say that you say i'm out of gas and you scrunch your face a little bit that is how you ask where is there a gas station the person will naturally say oh there's a mobile down by the corner if you just walk but that means that the content the meaning is different from what you actually intend, what response you actually expect to get. Those are called implicatures. That is something I know a little bit about. That's from speech act theory. And that's another example of how there's this lack of fit between the content and the meaning. But for me, where this gets really fun, and it's not something anybody has asked for, but it's something I've wanted to do a show about for a while, because it's just more important than most of what of linguistics gets out there implies, is what are called constructions, and that's a really crummy thing to call it, a construction. That could refer to just about anything in the world. Or a raisin bran box is constructed, but unfortunately we're stuck with some jargon, which makes sense if you know the historiography of linguistics, but it's constructions. It's something that we don't think about in terms of how we use language, but if you don't understand constructions, then it adds a lot to the frustration of learning another language, and it just creates all sorts of needless misunderstanding. So what do I what do I mean by this? Well, for example, let's say you say to somebody, what are you doing here? What you said was what thing are you accomplishing in this place? What are you doing? Are you using an erector set? Are you listening to Alanis Morissette? Are you taking a cockroach and putting it on a pin and putting it in a box along with the dragonflies and yes, I do do that. Well, I did when I was a teenager. And I'm now imposing that On my daughters. Anyway, what are you doing here? But you don't mean that. You're not asking what the person is doing, especially because generally you're sitting right there in front of them. Whatever they're doing, you can see, you don't need to ask. What are you doing here means why are you here? For what reason are you in this spot? You just have to know that when speaking English. So it's not about the sentence, you are doing here what? It's what it means. There's a lack of fit between the content and the meaning to speak English is to just know that what are you doing walking up the steps? Well, clearly what you're doing is walking up the steps. It means why are you walking up the steps? Here's another one. The more you see it, the less you like it. Now, we all know what that means, but you know, the form doesn't fit more. You see it less. You like it. Does it mean you see it more and therefore you like it less in one instance? No, There's this sense of two lines going in different directions. The more you see it, the less you like it. It's like versus like that. Well, where is that in the content? More you see it, less you like it. That sounds like just one thing. I saw it more. And after I saw it more, I liked it less once. But if you say the more you see it, the less you like it, it's this ongoing process. But since when does the indicate an ongoing process? When I hear the, I don't think, oh, the, that's not what the is. It's just that in this particular expression, when you say the, mm, mm, the, mm, and the ones are more and less, then it means that the more you see it, then consequently, step by step with the increase of the moreness, there's the decrease of the lessness. The more you see it, the less you like it. Of course, nobody ever puts it this way, but from context you pick it up. Why is it this way? You know why does the suddenly mean the I'm guessing and this is just guessing and I could be wrong. I haven't studied the history of this construction. Maybe it used to be when the was still the word that essentially and so it was kind of that much more you see it, that much less you know, like something like that. But now it's just frozen into the more you see it, the less you like it. That's a construction because there's that lack of fit between what you say And what you mean, how much pepper do you need? Nobody would say seven grams. How much pepper do you need is your way of not asking anything at all. For one thing, you're stating something. And what you're stating is you're using too much pepper. That's quite arbitrary. You could try that in another language and a person might say to you, well, I imagine I'm going to use a pinch. But in English, we say, how much pepper do you need? And what that means is you are using too much pepper. Now, all of these things indicate this kind of lack of fit. These are cases where the irony, so to speak, is so well established that there is no extra processing load, but it begins with that lack of fit, and that's part of communication. What begins as a kind of implicature, or even irony, although it might not be intended to be funny, becomes conventionalized. But what it's all about is that unpredictability, that the only way that you know that it means what it means is because you are speaking the language within situations where you can see what things actually mean despite the fact that people don't put them the way you would expect and what's interesting about that is that this can be seen as the heart of almost everything about language there's a whole theory of how to analyze language which frankly i highly suspect is very much on the right track. It's called construction grammar, you know, vague name because you know, isn't grammar all about constructions, but construction grammar. And under this idea, everything is constructions in a way. It's that unpredictability. So words are unpredictable because if you say dog, you have to know that we mean by that word dog. There's nothing about dog. And we kind of think what dog dog dog. Yeah, but that's just because, you know, we read comic strips and because we know what dogs are like. And yeah, you know, the reason is obvious. In Spanish, it's perro, and for people who speak Spanish, I can kind of tell that for them perro sounds as much like a dog as <laughs> dog sounds like a dog. To us, it's perfectly arbitrary or just rules, grammatical rules they're unpredictable in a way. You have to know what they mean. So if I say, I have to go, I have to leave. It's something that I have, it's upon me to depart. I have to go, but no, that's what it means in English. And there's some other languages where that's what it would mean. But there are other ones where I have, and then some infinitive or some other verb means something different. So for example, in Latin, if you said, I have to go, what that meant was, I will go. And you can see the implicature. You can see how these things happen through these things that are implied but not concrete at first. If it's on my plate, then not only is it an obligation, that's what we think, but it might also mean you're going to do it in the future because it's on your plate and pretty soon it is a future. It's kind of like that episode of Seinfeld. it's Elaine who says, well, if somebody has lost their spouse, well, just let them know that you're there for them. You're always there for them. And after a while, you're there. Meaning you try to take advantage of people who have gone through a divorce because you're trying to date them too. That sort of thing. Well, after a while, You have the obligation, this obligation. Let people know that they have an obligation. And after a while, the obligation in the future actually does happen. And so you're there, that same thing. So rules are even unpredictable because putting something a certain way in language A may not mean the same thing in language B. And then there are these constructions like, what are you doing here and how much pepper do you need? It's all over a language. And so think about... Oh, that must be the pizza. Must? Do you mean by that that it is obligatory and morally incontestable that that is the pizza? No, you mean probably that's the pizza. That must be the pizza. So you're learning some other language and you think, well, I'm going to use their must word when the pizza's coming. And you end up sounding like a very strange person. Why does it have to be the pizza? What are you going to say to the Amazon man if it turns out to be him instead of pizza? Are you going to tell him that he was wrong? No. And in Spanish, you used the future for that. Será la pizza. It, that wasn't a sentence, <laughs> but let's keep it. So será la pizza. It will be the pizza. Now, in English, you could say, oh, that would be the pizza, but you'd sound like a a jackass. Frankly, it reminds me of somebody I knew in college. They spent one week in London, one short week, and they came back saying schedule and not in quotation marks. They really wanted you to think that they had come up with that pronunciation because they'd just been so steeped in the British Language. And so we don't say that'll be the pizza. People would understand what you meant and and move over a little bit. We say that must be the pizza. Or English, the future. Goodness gracious. It's one of the saddest things about English. I'm glad I don't have to learn it. I've brought it up on this show before. But think about what various ways of putting things in the future actually mean. So, are you going to the party? Will you go to the party? Are you going to go to the party? They all mean different things. So, are you going to the party? Let's call that neutral. That's really the future. Are you going to the party? Now, the textbook will have it that you use will in the future. So you can say will you go to the party? But no, notice that doesn't mean tomorrow night, huh? You're going to be at the party, we'll listen to some Lana's Morissette, something like that. If you say will you go to the party? You either mean, god damn it, I'm sitting here trying to to study the history of Rhode Island and you're you're bothering me. Will you go to the party? Something like that or Will you go to the party? And it implies if something else is or isn't going on. Are you going to the party is one thing. Will you go to the party is not something you would say to mean just are you going to be there tomorrow night. Or how about this? You say tomorrow I turn 15. That's another way of indicating the future in English. Okay. well, what about this party? Suppose you said, do you go to the party or not? Well, notice that you almost have to say the or not. Do you go to the party if you're going to use the present future in that way do you go to the party or not this means well you have to make this choice it's very important or you're asking about something habitual and so let's say there's a party every week do you go to the party or not that's what it would have to mean then are you going to go to the party now that implies either there's something really lit about the party see i'm trying to use young slang or that there's some problem like are you going to go to the party you know, I hear that actually they're only going to be serving potato salad in cones. Are you going to go to the party? <laughs> so it's all these things. What that can be analyzed as is that each one of these ways of putting the future is couched in a construction. It's not just the future in English sucks. It's that it's distributed across various constructions, which you learn. You learn what context those things fit into. And you know the rhythm of the show, and it's time for a clip. And you know what I'm going to use? I've used it before, but there are enough of these shows now that God who remembers. I'm going to use the Noel Coward song, I've Been to a Marvelous Party. This is Patricia Routledge singing. This is one of the cleverest lyrics ever written. This is just near the end. This is her in the early 70s. I've been to a marvelous party. (laughs) made an entrance with May. Yes, you'd never have guessed from her fisherman's vest that her bust had been whittled away. Paul Lulu got fried on Chianti and talked about esprit de corps. Maurice made a couple of passes at Gus, and Freddie, who hates any kind of a fuss, did half the big apple and twisted his truss. I couldn't have liked it more. So this sort of thing is just all over the place. Russian. If you say no need, no that doesn't mean you don't need to. It, it can, but what it really means is don't do it. No need means stop. It's like a finger up in your face. You just have to know that. You know, a book probably isn't going to tell you. A person has to live it or be told or something like that. In French, merci means thank you, but it also means no more. And so somebody is going to ruin your coffee. You've got it just the way you like it. And the waiter comes along and says, can I freshen that up? And you, No. Merci. That means no more. Don't give me any more coffee. I'm enjoying what I've got. You just kind of have to pick that up. I've heard people saying that it took a while for them to understand that and to avoid misunderstandings. Or in British, tags are different. So I want you to listen to, for example, let's do Ted Lasso because everybody's watching it and now I'm watching it because I wanted to be in on things, given that every third adult in the United States seemed to be dressed in Ted Lasso this Halloween. And so here is the actor who plays Jamie Tart on a talk show, Phil Dunster, and listen to him and how he uses don't you. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it's it's such a dream to have really with, I mean, as as an actor, you, you want to have that, don't you? You want to have that sort of characters who are challenged and you need to overcome things and learn Hear that? things and I think in- You want to have that, don't you? You want to have that. I haven't heard the clip in so long that I don't know whether I'm doing the accent at all, but you want to have that, don't you? You want to have that. What's the don't you? You notice Americans and Canadians that Brits use that don't you and tags like that a lot more than we do. I've been really busy, haven't I? Where we would just say, I've been really busy. You know, so don't try to saddle me with more work. Or that's why I've got bags under my eyes. So you want to have that, don't you? You want to have that. I would not say in American, you want to have that, don't you? You want to have that. I could, but no, that, that, that's a British thing. We just use intonation there. They fill it in with a tag. The tags have that constructional meaning. It doesn't actually mean you want to have that do you not you want to have that why would you put anything that way the tag is used to solicit understanding to underline they use it differently from us because their constructions are somewhat different from ours so you just see so much of this sort of thing so suppose somebody says what are you doing down here as far as representing our company upstairs i peddled my way across the room but here i am (laughs) you could say that what are you doing down here? Well, right then, you know what they're doing because you're standing right in front of them. So, let's say that you're all representing some company at some convention, and you say, well, as far as representing upstairs, if you think about it, what does that mean? As far as. What? It's short for as far as representing upstairs is concerned, but we tend to leave off the is concerned, which means that as far as representing upstairs, it means as to, but what's the Far as, as far it's a construction. You just know that. As far as X, that's part of knowing English. The dictionary definition of far will not help you. You have to know the construction. Then I pedaled my way across the room. Okay, my way across. So that means that you pedaled all over that room. You hit up as many people as you could. Now It doesn't mean your way across, absolutely, and then my way. Why my way? There was no way. But instead, you put it that way. I peddled my way across the room, meaning you did as much as you could, despite the fact that it had nothing to do with, say, paddling some boat in a groove or something like that. And then, but here I am. Why do you put it that way? Isn't it? But I am here. And then again, why are you saying that when it's quite clear that (laughs) there you are? What you mean is I pedaled my way across the room, but here I am. As in, I'm down here and I'm going to stay because I'm tired. Or you didn't know where I was and so here I am with my arms stretched out. Here I am. And the thing is, that presentational meaning is one where you indicate it with a construction. The construction being this otherwise archaic way of putting it. I am here. Here I am. That means, ta-da. Now, who would know? In some other language, changing the order like that would not mean anything presentational. But in English, if you say, instead of I am here, you say here I am, it means that there's a little halo on your head and your arms are stretched out and there's some music on the soundtrack. Music like this from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the musical. This is a very cute song. This is somebody who is new to Paris and she sings a magnificently, magnificently innocent song about being in Paris and it happens to be called Here I Am air is French, that chair is French, this nice and sincere son. air is French, the skies are French, the pies are French, those guys are French, these fries are French! Pardon me if I fly off the handle, no place else on earth can hold the candle. So, Benny V, D, V, C folks, let's face it, juice we see folks, excuse me if I spout, I'm late. David Yazbek is so good with the words. The lesson here is that language is shitty. It's shitty, isn't it? It's a problem in a way, but it also makes it fun, which is that language does not do what you would think it would. It is as messy as almost anything that's created by natural selection. You know, the brain's a mess. The more they learn about it, the more of a magnificent mess you can see it is. Language is a mess, too. I recommend a a book. It's Nick Enfield's, Nick, Nicholas Enfield's book, Language Versus Reality. The title sounds kind of boring. It's actually a very exciting book. It's full of very interesting chapters. And a lot of the thesis is, first of all, with our imperfect perceptors, we only perceive so much of the world. We don't know from ultraviolet light. We can't keep everything in our mind. We only perceive so much of the world. Then, with language, we only express... So much of what we perceive, because even though we don't perceive everything, we perceive an awful lot, all the jots and tittles and nuances. We only express so much of what we perceive because what language is for is not mechanically channeling that which we see in as much detail as possible. Who would want to do that? If that's what life was for, it wouldn't be living, and frankly, I wouldn't want to live. The reason we use language is social. It's for interaction. It's for keeping track of people. It's for making people feel comfortable with you. It's social. And that purpose is a subset of everything that you perceive. Language is fundamentally a social interactional tool. That's why it would have evolved. That's why it would have made our species successful enough to eventually destroy the earth. It's not solely about information. And that means that language is never maximally explicit. So there are always these jumps between what you say and what you actually mean. And you can see these things in the news today. So for example, this Biden thing, let's go Brandon. And so there's a race, and the racer's name is Brandon, and he just won. And the stadium is full of people who aren't fond of President Biden. And so they're saying, fuck you, Biden. Fuck you, Biden. Thank you to all of our partners. Oh, my God, it's just such an unbelievable moment. Brandon, you also told me, as you can hear the chants from the, the crowd... Let's go, Brandon. Brandon, oh, you told right. me. And a reporter wants, wants to paper hay it hay over. That's and so he do do says, well, say, well, they're saying, say, Let's, Let's go, Brandon. Go. Let's go, Brandon. Okay. And so since then, that happened about 10 minutes ago, but now Let's Go Brandon has become the cute way on the right to say fuck you, Biden, without saying it. And now the left is taking Brandon and changing it into thank you, Brandon, for impending legislation, etc. So Brandon is becoming this code word for Biden. But here's the thing. It's about me and my mistakes. I wrote a piece about this where I said that the whole Let's Go Brandon thing was funny first because... Supposedly all these people are yelling, let's go, Brandon, but he just won. So apparently he already did go. Why would they be in there yelling, let's go, Brandon? But I was wrong. The problem is that I don't do sports, and so I don't know anything about these things. I've been told by many people, and I am happy to hear it, that apparently it is a thing to just yell, let's go, Brandon, whether or not he won or not. That that's basically like saying, boy, you're you're hot stuff, Brandon. And so there's that lack of fit. Let's go Brandon doesn't mean Brandon go because he just went and he's presumably not going to do some other race right away. It's that lack of fit. It's construction-y in its way. Or Black Lives Matter. What Black Lives Matter means is Black Lives Matter too. That's the implication. It doesn't mean Black Lives Matter more. Now, there's been a certain kind of person who I think has Largely pretended to think that it meant black lives matter more, as if anybody would say that, as if that would seem like a productive thing to say. When to speak a language is to understand. If somebody says black lives matter, the implication is that people have implied or thought that they don't matter before. So you mean black lives matter too, with it having been assumed by everybody that non black lives do. Black lives matter too. So just the intonational pattern da 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 depending on what is within the international contour. It implies also, it implies as well, it's kind of a construction. Or back to, you know, athletes and chants, because this is actually another example. Back to Jamie Tart. You watch Ted Lasso and the people in the pub always start going, Jamie Tart da da Jamie Tart Jamie Tart Notice how I got better at the accent as we went in. I can't do that, that accent that they have. I've got to learn how to do that. But what is that? Why are they singing that? Jamie Todd. Jamie Todd. Jamie Todd. Jamie
1: Todd.
0: Well, of course, that starts with the truly egregious little song Baby Shark. And, you know, anybody with kids has picked up on this one where everybody gets a huge grin on their face and they look off into the distance and start just going Baby Shark. Da, 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 baby Shark. And so that's that. Okay. And then Baby Shark, well, Jamie Tart. And so you put that onto it. And so if you love the Baby Shark, although why in the world would you like any shark? But then you put Jamie Tart on Jamie Tart because it's vaguely celebratory. And next thing you know, you have people singing that little song. It wouldn't have made any sense to anybody 10 years ago. And I'm presuming... That baby shark thing is something that could only happen here in America. And yet you see it has crossed the Atlantic and says, Of course, you realize that now I'm beginning to think that, you know, Ted Lasso was created over there, and I'm not sure. Actually, if it was made up here, then that's Americans putting that into their mouths. But you can tell people are doing that in pubs in Britain. And actually, Phil Dunster, the actor, explains how this happened. In a way, he's explaining the birth of a construction. And uh, yeah, I think we, they needed a, 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 a song, a, a sort of chant. And I love football level with, f- football, yeah. Football. football. <laughs> football. sorry. So <Did> we have <laughs> a, <laughs> is there like <laughs> translation coming across the bottom of the screen? No. Um, uh, and so yeah, it's, it, I felt like that would have been the sort of song that you'd hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, we came up with it together, but um, yeah. Jamie Ta. So, from Alanis Morissette to Jamie Ta, with nary a mention of the Jeffersons. <laughs> it's all pretty ironic, isn't it? <laughs> see, it isn't. And in any case, if you'd like to leave a comment or check out our other great podcasts, Banished and Bully Pulpit, or subscribe, please visit booksmartstudios.org. Our producers are Matthew Schwartz and, as always, Mike Bolo. Our theme music was created by Harvest Creative Services. Those sister podcasts, again, are Banished, about cancel culture, and bully pulpit about much else. By the way, tuba, French horn. I, couldn't help I am John McWhorter, unfortunately.